Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 111. On December 21st, 1834, at least 10,000 warriors under Makoma and Yali swept all before them as they raided deep into the Cape Colony across a wide front. Fort Beaufort and Fort Wilshire were the main centre of British operations to the north of Grahamstown as this war began. Fort Beaufort was particularly strategic because of its proximity to the Cut River settlement. The Makosa avoided attacking the settlement, but that was going to change. They were hoping that the Khoikhoi would rise up alongside the Amakosa and defeat the settlers. But the Khoikhoi and the Amakosa had a far longer tradition of competition over land and resources. It wasn't going to be that simple. This was far more deeply etched into the narrative of both peoples than the simple colour of skin debate. Smaller centres such as Bathurst and Salem, closer to the coast, were also coming under attack, situated between Grahamstown and the sea, or a possible escape route for the settlers and the Boers, who could not keep fighting inland. When the British had established the 1820 settlers, they had densely parceled these farms together as a forward barrier against the Khoza, who may advance across the Fish River. And now the Matkosa were advancing over the Fish River, but over the last 14 years, the military presence and preparation there had dwindled, and the settler unpreparedness for war was almost total. Bertrand Bowker wrote scathingly of how the settlers of the lower Albany region had scarcely any guns and most of them who did did not know how to shoot, just us brothers and a few others. The Bowkers were far more integrated in the Cape landscape than most of the English Arabis who expected a genteel rural life despite the fact that they were living on Amakosa land. Most of the colonists were armed with pitchforks and bayonets facing highly experienced fighters of the Makosa armed with half a dozen spears each. If these two groups had fought on the basis of the pointed weapons alone, the Makosa would have easily overcome the settlers. But guns were going to make a big difference, despite there being very little ammunition on the front. Bathurst was a small village of 30 houses in 1834, and an unfinished church, which is where the women and children were being housed. A large kraal was also built for the thousands of head of cattle and sheep that had been herded to Bathurst from surrounding farms, and the first attack was launched in the period between Christmas and New Year. Thousands of Amakosa surrounded this huge kraal with its church and houses and 900 defenders, many of whom were women and children. The first sign of trouble were the terrifying sounds of the whistles and war cries that rose in the night and the firebrands carried in their hundreds by the warriors who launched these at the thatched houses. This was followed by a rain of assegais. The defenders focused their guns in the flame carriers, the only ones who could be seen in the dark. Inside the church, the women and children huddled. They could see nothing, but heard the intensifying noise of war, and then began to scream and weep, crying to God to deliver them. Damatkosa managed to capture a large number of cattle and began driving these off, but the Bauka sons in particular moved in pursuit. They quickly realized that the other settlers did not come to their support and found themselves outside thick bush, in which the Amatkosa warriors shouted to them to come inside and fight. The Baukas were like the Boers. They made their living out of their cattle. It was their treasure, and they were obsessed by their animals. The next day, the family took turns looking through a telescope at their beasts still browsing on their land, around 12 miles away. 
The Balkas were part of a patrol sent out after the first attack and they broke off from this patrol and galloped off to find their cattle, catching up with some of the Amatosa warriors who then fled when they realized who they were. The family had a name for shooting straight and were instantly recognized. Holden Barker was particularly feared, using his double-barreled elephant gun accurately and reloading in seconds. With my three brothers by me, I felt up to anything that may turn up, he said later. With all the bravado, the reality was Bathurst was untenable as a defensive position, at least the people inside thought so, and a few days after Christmas, a patrol was sent from Grahamstown to evacuate the 900 within. It was a forlorn convoy of 70 wagons that set off from the village, which was then totally abandoned to the rampaging Oza. Down the road was the village of Salem, and there the settlers did not evacuate, but decided to take their chances and fight. A force of Amakosa warriors arrived, and then one of the inhabitants, who was a Quaker and a pacifist, walked out towards the attackers, asking Amakosa why they were harming innocent people. This Quaker had bags of tobacco and bread and meat and distributed the food amongst the warriors. The Amakosa decided they'd leave Salem alone from then on and continued on their way. It was to Grahamstown that most settlers fled, and of course heading there soon was Sir Harry Smith, he was still to leave Cape Town at this juncture, and between Christmas and his arrival on the 6th of January 1835, most of the raiding and destruction had already taken place. The initial plans for the defence of Grahamstown were drawn up by Civil Commissioner Duncan Campbell and Lieutenant Colonel Richard England of the 75th Regiment. Both men were, in a word, incompetent. When Harry Smith arrived, he referred to Campbell as the panic-struck old dotard. Smith was even more rude about England, referring to him as a man marked as unreliable and untrustworthy on the field. Then again, this was Smith talking, the man who epitomized warfare to his very soul, so perhaps he was a tad harsh, or perhaps not. England was a survivor of the first big Amakosa attack on Grahamstown in 1819. He had fought inside the town against Ngele's warriors and had kept his soldiers at their barracks at the eastern end of the town. He didn't deploy them for the defense of the town itself in 1834. He organized the settler men to be armed and then sent them out of the town as sentry posts on the main entrances to Grahamstown, leaving his soldiers inside their barracks. He also ordered heavily armed patrols to scout through the bush. England did post a few of his soldiers as sentinels on the commanding heights above Grahamstown, who then reported on the rising smoke from the burning farms across the Albany region. They also saw the vultures wheeling above many of these drawn to the dead. Eventually, the settlers could take this no more and arrange their own band of volunteers to ride out and look for survivors who may be trapped on the farms, with Duncan Campbell at first refusing to help at all, not even wanting to give them ammunition. Basically, everyone was in shock, protecting themselves. One patrol found Irishman Mahoney's widow untouched but beside herself. They also found two of her grandchildren walking with a koi-koi servant. Then they came across the wagon and the mutilated bodies of the settler men. Their nerves snapped and they galloped back to Grahamstown. In town, things were a haphazard mess. Hastily erected barricades were thrown up, wagons, timber, sandbags thrown across the roads, the church encircled by wagons and other goods, and inside sat the women and children. Lying alongside these terrified souls was the magazine for the arms and ammunition. It was Christmas Day when the church bells tolled to warn of a passing Amakosa warrior party under command of Makoma and Charlie. 
These two had learned from previous wars and were loath to take on strong defensive positions directly, preferring to bypass the town and stream over the mountains down along the coastal zone, heading towards Algoa Bay and Port Elizabeth at Utenhake. This was happening very quickly. Further north, in Fort Beaufort, Colonel Henry Somerset sat and stewed. McCormer was looking for him to serve up a fearful meal of hot revenge after all his backflapping, but they had missed Somerset earlier at Fort Wilshire. Within a day, the warriors were upon Algoa Bay and Utenhag, rolling forward unstoppable, and now there were real fears they were going to make it all the way to Cape Town. Henry Somerset was a hot mess of uselessness. His inflated sense of his own military prowess bubble had burst, and he did not have the slightest idea about what to do next. His bullying of the Amatkoza and his intimidation tactics had collapsed in the face of what he regarded as a finely oiled war machine called the Amatkoza military system coming his way. Admittedly, he didn't have many resources, but for all who watched him, it was clear that circumstances had overcome his limited intellect. He had been liked by some of the Amakosa chiefs and the colonists. He was regarded as kind and sympathetic by many. He held balls and dinners, and bizarrely, Somerset did actually have sympathy for the Amakosa. What he didn't seem to understand is that his inconsistency in shifting disposition towards them was one of the underlying factors of this war. The total number of men available to him now was 755, including 27 from the Royal Artillery, 482 of the 75th Regiment, 20 Royal Engineers, and 226 of the Koikoi Cape Mountain Rifles. 548 of these full-time soldiers were in Grahamstown, more than two-thirds of the men under arms. Facing them were the Koza chiefs, who'd learned a thing or two about fighting the British. They came in separate war parties, each using different routes appointed to them, each briefed about specific objectives. They were well briefed on how to avoid the troops, and which farms were easiest to overcome, how to move so quickly that the Boers and the settlers would be caught unawares. The units generally swept past the military posts, then fell upon the settlements, killing the men and chasing off the women and children, seizing the cattle. For most warriors, the raging desire was to drive the settlers into the sea. But this was not the main desire of Makoma and Charlie, their leaders. These two men were much more astute and wanted to shock the British into negotiating their futures by showing their mettle. The chiefs spoke of chasing the settlers away, but it's very clear from the oral histories that they were quite aware they did not have the power to do this. It was too late already to dream of such a thing. They wanted to prove to the British that they were people not to be trifled with, and you'll hear over the series how this actually was to be more successful than most realize. Mbalu chief Ngeno was supposed to attack Gramstown at night to draw the majority of the British troops out and then sucker punch them because other Amatkoza units were going to be waiting on the flanks to attack from all sides and raise Gramstown to the ground. Eviscerated in the way the Romans utterly flattened Carthage. Ironically, had Mbalu and Makoma gone ahead with that plan, military historians believe they would have been successful. There are always grand moments hidden away at times like this. Makoma did have a plan to work with Mbalu, but things didn't pan out. Originally, the idea was for him to follow up after he had attacked Fort Wilshire, and he was in place, as promised, waiting for a signal at that fort. Some dissatisfied Khoi Khoi soldiers stationed at Fort Wilshire had offered a kind of inside job. They were going to set fire to a shop just outside the main gates, 
when the British opened the gates to fight the blaze, the Amakosa would launch their counter-attack. Makoma waited in vain and was sidetracked by that visit of missionary Kaiser I told you about. The Khoikhoi also failed to get a key to the gates and couldn't start any fire. The Makosa also couldn't get to these buildings because it was too close to the fort and they'd be shot. Makoma got the fort anyway. Somerset was going to order it abandoned. But by then Mbalu had given up on his Grahamstown plan and headed past down to the other settlements. Somerset fled to Grahamstown and merely added to the state of panic when he got there, telling other officers that the Khoza were going to attack with the whole of their united strength. This is when he concocted the self-destructive plan of abandoning Grahamstown itself. By the 1st of January 1835, Damat had seized thousands of head of cattle and sheep and horses, killed a few settlers and sent a message. They were a real menace and needed to be taken seriously. But they'd done virtually no damage to the British military itself, and while their initial plan to cleverly avoid full frontal battles was an excellent tactic, it was a big mistake in terms of strategy. It was on the first day of 1835 that two letters arrived in Grahamstown, sent by Makoma and Charlie. They ordered the missionaries to write their offers of a ceasefire and negotiations to be made to the governor, Sir Benjamin de Urban, who of course they had yet to meet. Makoma laid out the reasons for the war and blamed Somerset. Colonel Somerset communicates with you, said the Amakosa chief, but he tells you only one side of the story. Colonel Somerset for a long time has killed a Khoza. He has disturbed the peace of the land and torn it in pieces. Matters are now come to such a crisis that you alone are able to rectify them, said Makoma. Colonel Somerset has also ruined me. It was in 1829, said Makoma, that he had been forced out of his territories. Charlie's letter was a different kettle of fish. He laid out 14 points he said had caused this war in a process that involved his explanation being made in front of a great assembly of his own people. The missionary William Chalmers sat in his church after being called there by Charlie and wrote out the grievances. The shooting of Ngano's son by the commander of 1825, the shooting and the wounding of other chiefs. But it was the 13th point that summarized his point of view. There are three things which are great in Kosaland. First, it is a great thing to kill a chief or wound him. Second, it is a great thing to take land from the Corsa. And third, it is a great thing to seize the real cattle of a chief. Somerset received these messages and thought it a ruse. So did Chalmers, just something to buy time. The colonel believed that Macomo was going to hit Grahamstown and sent his own letter to Durban asking for reinforcements from England and Mauritius. So it was on the sixth day of 1835 that Sir Harry Smith galloped into town his 600-mile epic ride at an end, but his mission just beginning. He'd passed a rider hurrying to Cape Town from the frontier on the way and read the letters and was horrified to read Somerset's suggestions that Grahamstown be abandoned. When he arrived in that town on the evening of the 6th, he noted the chaotically arranged barricades, and he thought it a helpless muddle. He was fresh enough to start a battle, and his eyes were waspishly alert, as Noel Mostat writes. What struck him as ridiculous, so ridiculous that he almost burst out laughing as he rode through the town, was the higgledy-piggledy nature of the sandbags et al. He did not laugh out aloud, because watching him were men and women, the settlers who'd lost family members and everything. The town was overcome with melancholy, with consternation. What really made Smith very angry was the unmilitary appearance of the settlers, who he said were shuffling about like an Irish mob at a funeral. 
their firearms slung about their bodies, swords stuffed into their belts like pirates. Smith noted that the outer defences of the town were arranged in such an absurd nature that they would have set half the people shooting at the other. He was briefed by Henry Somerset, and that did not go well at all. At a conference that night at Somerset's home called Oatlands, he met Duncan Campbell and Lieutenant Colonel England. Smith's jaw literally dropped. When you read his letters, I'm amazed that he didn't actually have all three court-martialed and probably shot, because it must have been on his mind. To leave Fort Wilshire to be looted and burned was criminal, he said, shamefully abandoned, all stores and equipment gone. It was tantamount to cowardice, he railed, and he felt the same about the village of Bathurst. When Somerset claimed that there were at least 100,000 Amatosa in the field, Smith knew he was facing a man in panic and fear. That little devil, Somerset, is a contemptible wretch, as much afraid of me as of responsibility, he wrote to his beloved Juana. His conduct has been puny. The frontier was about to feel the wrath of a war dog. Martial law was declared the next day, 7th of January. All fit male settlers between 16 and 60 were to register for military service, or considered deserters, and they would be shot. Within two hours of this promulgation, a Grahamstown volunteer corps was indeed formed. When a local dignitary complained that he should not be in this corps, Smith rounded on him, losing his temper, which was customary. You are now under martial law, and the first gentleman, I care not who he may be, who does not promptly and implicitly obey my command, I shall try him by a court-martial and punish him in five minutes, as in shoot him. Smith was clearly feared, and those who heard this knew he meant every word he said. When a homeowner whose house was used by Smith as a barracks doffed his hat, Smith yelled, Eyes front, sir! None of your damned politeness in the ranks! Smith nominated the homeowner to be top of the roster for night guard duty, and then threw him in prison for two days, just as an example. Word of what was going on blew through Grahamstown like a hot breeze. By that night, the entire manner of the town had changed. Men moved like men, and felt that their safety consisted of energetic obedience, wrote Smith. Then he dismantled the barricades, which he said undermined morale and confidence, reminding his troops and the settlers that defense should consist in military vigilance and not in being cooped up behind doors, windows, and barricades three feet deep. He set up alarm posts around town, using regulars from the 75th Regiment, the Gordon Highlanders, moving them out of their barracks where England had kept them. The settlers immediately felt reassured that they hadn't been left to defend themselves. For all this energy, the British were actually in big trouble, whatever Harry Smith's reorganisation. He muttered about how he was an Englishman and ruler of all before him. He would not be humiliated by what he called a lot of black fellows armed with nothing but a knife stuck on the end of a long stick, which was not an accurate reading of his enemy at all. That was going to become increasingly clear to him in the next few months. So he rejected Macroma and Yali's letters on behalf of the governor, and as an extremely aggressive military commander, he sent a message back to the Tosa that they should return beyond the boundaries imposed on them before the war and to surrender all the cattle seized. Smith also wanted to immediately reverse what he saw as a craven retreat by Somerset. In the meantime, some of the troops from Cape Town began to arrive, and the commandos from the eastern districts around Graaf Reynet 
were called out, the burghers dressed in their corduroy jackets and broad-brimmed hats. Apart from the Grahamstown volunteers, the Bathurst volunteers were also drawn up, as well as the corps of guides with ostrich feathers in their hats. You also managed to organise two provisional battalions of Khoikhoi auxiliaries from Albany and the Kat River settlement, 800 in all. They were dressed in black jackets and low crown hats, and Smith appreciated what he called their natural ability as soldiers. So on the 10th of January, 1835, a column of 400 armed volunteers rode out east of Grahamstown towards Fort Wilshire and burned the homesteads of Ngonu and Tiali. Leading them was an old colleague of Smith's who'd fought with him, yes, in the Peninsular War against Napoleon, Major William Cox. An old brother rifleman, pronounced Smith. Nkrenu was the Mbalu chief and son of Langa, Rarabi's brother. The depth of honour ran deep in this Mbalu family. Cox came close to capturing Nkrenu, but his daughter saved him. When the soldiers appeared, Nkrenu dressed in one of his daughter's skins while she donned his leopard cloak, and she ran off, drawing the soldiers' fire. He managed to slip away, but she was seriously wounded and fell. It was only the intervention of a young colonial officer that stopped the volunteers from shooting her where she lay. Ingrena was not in the field fighting with his men. The chiefs often remained behind. But this great place was not defended by many warriors who were now charging through the Albany region far away. Most of Ingrena's counsellors, two of his brothers and a son were all killed. Cox eventually made it to Fort Wilshire and found it partially destroyed by fire all equipment and supplies looted. Harry Smith then dispatched Henry Somerset to clear the road to Port Elizabeth, which was Grahamstown's main supply route from Cape Town, and sent out other patrols to secure strategic points along the frontier. Cox pushed on from Wilshire to Charlie's Great Place, which was abandoned. As the road, Grahamstown Journal editor Robert Godlinton, who was with Cox, said of the riding, through a land of thickly studded mimosas and other evergreens, we came to an open space, and at this moment, as if by magic, the vapours ascended and disclosed a fine and look as ever the imagination formed of fairyland. Godlinton, as you know, had railed against Amatkoz and was amazed at the size of Charlie's great place. Their construction surprised him. The interior of this hut, ornamented by a double row of pillars of straight smooth wood, supporting a large spherical roof. Everything was plastered. It was an idea of neatness which we did not expect to find among the causa. Then they set fire to the entire place, and this destruction of Charlie's kraal was the beginning of the real war between the British army and the Amakosa people. The entire nation, the only major chief who now stood aside, was Patu of the Kunukwebe. Hinsa was the key. He had hated Nguika. Nguika was dead and now his stated pacifist relationship with the British had ended, and the honeymoon period between the missionaries and Hinsa was coming to an end. Their lives were now in extreme danger. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. If you have the inclination, it helps increase the visibility of the series, and don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me, or through Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.